Welcome back to Death Walks With Us. I'm your host, Angela. Today will be the first part of a three-part series on a disgusting piece of garbage fungus. And before I jump into this case, I want to say a word about my sources. I read and watched many different sources and they do have different information. So I tried to go with the majority view. There was one source that did not even have some of the names correct. Um, even people's magazines had a major piece of information wrong. I will post what I used in the show notes. I did not use the Netflix documentary as I do not have Netflix. A lot of the documentaries I watched were on Hulu, Discovery Plus, Prime, and free sites Tubi, I think that's how you pronounce it, T-U-B-I, and Pluto TV. Oh, for those that know this case well, some things are purposely left out that I will discuss in other episodes. Now on with this case. As a lone man spirals into darkness, his terror will soon grip the people of Los Angeles. It began in Glossel Park in Los Angeles County as 79-year-old Jenny Vinco who was known for 25 years as the first victim. Jenny had lived in Brooklyn, but after arguments with her son, some ending in him hitting her, Jenny's other son moved her closer to him to be able to look out for her. He lived in the same pink apartment complex. On June 28, 1984, Jenny was walked home by her son. He would be the second to last person to see her alive. A man of darkness had just bought drugs and made his way into her quiet neighborhood. High on coke, he cased the houses to find a house with a screen he can easily pop off, and Jenny had left a window open in her ground floor apartment. The intruder removed the screen to her window. He then slipped in and started ruffling through her few belongings, all while she slept soundly for he had years of practice on how to stay silent. This darkness that had entered her apartment found nothing of value to satisfy his needs, causing him to become so angry he pulled out his six-inch hunting knife and repeatedly stabs her. Her poverty had angered him. Only her soul was worth stealing. Her throat was slit ear to ear, and she was nearly decapitated. He exited the apartment, taking only a small portable radio. Her body was discovered the next morning at 1.20 p.m. when her son had come to surprise her. The police would not find any of this intruder's fingerprints inside the apartment, but they found some partial prints on the screen he had to remove only because he had to remove his gloves to get inside the apartment. Her pushed-up dress suggested to them a sexual assault may have happened. Unbeknownst to the world, his reign of terror had begun. But it was a few months before he would kill again, or at least that is what the record shows. Months later, no one knew it, but Jenny's killer had stopped doing cocaine, as killing humans was his new high, and he won't stop till he's caught. But before I discuss any more murders, I want to mention what a piece of garbage fungus this monster was, so you can have an idea before I continue. In February and March, before the killing spree, he kidnapped and sexually assaulted children. Each one he abandoned at a different location. 
pen from the area he abducted them from. One he abandoned at a construction site, leaving behind his shoe print in the fresh cement. I'm not going to discuss these here, but one of his survivors' story is very important and inspiring, and I will talk about her in the third part, only because she wants it known. Now, on March 17, 1985, this intruder went into Rosemead to the condo of Maria Honduras and Dale Yoshi Okoski. A person dressed all in black had stolen a car at a gas station while the owner was inside paying for gas. Maria had left her boyfriend's apartment and started heading home when she was randomly spotted by this person who was out looking for murder and mayhem. Just as she was closing the garage door, a man intent on murder silently slipped into the garage. Maria had two locks to unlock on the door, and as she was unlocking the first, he made a noise, possibly from his black ACDC hat falling off his head, and she turned, seeing the barrel of the gun pointed at her head. The garage door finished closing, and the lights in the garage automatically went off as they should when it finished closing, so it was dark as he fired the gun right at her face. Reflectively moving her hand up to protect herself, the shot hit her right hand and the keys deflected the bullet. Maria was smart enough to play dead. After visiting her mom for the day, her roommate Dale, who was only a couple weeks short of her 35th birthday, was in the kitchen. She heard the shots and hid behind the kitchen counter, but he had seen her, and like a cat waiting for its prey, he waited silently. Not hearing anything, Dale looked over the counter to see if he had left, and that was when he shot her in the forehead, killing her. When he came out the front door, he saw Maria was not, in fact, dead, and she had come out of the garage. She begged him not to kill her, and he leaves. He does not shoot her again, even though she had seen his face. Instead, he headed to Monterey Park, and within the hour came across 30-year-old Tashi Lane Veronica Yu. She had been a law student at this time and was heading home after visiting all day with a childhood friend in Acadia. Both had come to America seven years earlier from Taiwan. He followed Veronica, who had noticed him following her, so she let him pass. Then she begins to follow him, to which he pulls over and she pulls over to confront him. She threatens to call the police on him, to which he tries pulling her out of her car window. Realizing he can't, and that the door is locked, he runs around the car, and before she can lock the passenger door, he pulls it open and gets in. He shoots her once in the side, just under her right arm, before she can get out, and then as she runs away, he shoots her again in her lower back. He gets into his stolen car and flees. There were several witnesses to the shooting. One man had seen him trying to pull her out and had called the police. A couple was outside in a truck saying goodnight and rushed to her aid. They stayed with her till the police came. As EMS worked on Veronica, she stopped breathing. They started doing CPR and rushed her to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. The killings were in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department's jurisdiction, and because murders are assigned on a rotational basis, the youngest homicide detective, Gil Carrillo, caught the case. 
He made his way to Marie's apartment, where he discovered the black ACDC hat laying on the ground. Maria's mother arrived at the crime scene to get a few items for Maria, and that's when Detective Carrillo discovered his connection. It had been 21 years since he last saw Miss Hernandez. She had been a good friend of his aunt, so much that his own mother was Maria's godmother. At the hospital, Maria described to the detective how the killer had stood in what was called a combat position and aimed at the head for what was the kill shot, suggesting to Carrello a veteran or someone in law enforcement. Carrello had taken courses at Quantico from the FBI's renowned behavioral science unit, where he learned about how certain murders are sex crimes, that murder in itself can be a sexual release for some individuals, and that was what he thought was happening here. He heard of the shooting death of Veronica, and based on witness testimony, he believed them to be linked. I just want to discuss how this is in the 80s, and inter-police departmental communication is not what it is today. The easiest way then for serial killers to get away with murder was by doing murder in different jurisdictions. Many cops did not want other departments' help. It's kind of an ego issue, and also politics. One wants the glory that comes with solving cases, glory that allows promotions and recognition. Maria described her attacker as a thin Hispanic man in his 20s, dressed all in black, had black bulging eyes, hollow cheeks, and rotting teeth, and she was able to give a drawing of this man. She did not know who he was. This was a random attack. The sketch from Maria had a strong resemblance to Veronica's killer when it was compared to the, those witnesses' sketch. Ballistic tests then came back and linked bullets from the two cases together as most likely the same, the bullet from Dale being too damaged to say for 100%. To which Carrello consulted with Sergeant Frank Salerno, famous for his involvement in the Hillside Strangler case. Carrello thinks the cases are linked, and Salerno suggested that he needs more evidence before the department will put more resources into it, meaning more people have to die. Another interesting fact about Frank Salerno, once he made it as a detective, before being in homicide, he first worked narcotics and arrested Charles Manson on a drug bus. Anyways, now after going over old cases, Carrello asked himself why did he leave Maria alive? He begins to think that there might be a racial angle. Certain light can make Maria look Asian. The two women killed were Asian. Combined with the combat stance and the kill shot caused him to theorize that it was an angry vet who had been to Vietnam. This theory on a vet did mislead the investigation. Carrello found the report of a man dressed all in black trying to get a girl into his car. She had gotten his license plate number. They identified the man as Paul Samuels and found out he was a veteran, so they trailed this man. They took his photo and Maria identified him from the photo. They arrested him and put him in a lineup. Once in the lineup, Maria and the other witnesses from Veronica's murder could not identify him, so they had to release him, and all they could do was wait to see if he struck again. They did not have to wait long. 
The media has started calling this man in black the walk-in killer, or some called him the Valley Intruder. On March 27th or March 26th, according to different sources, probably remembering Jenny's poverty, her murderer went looking for a victim that should have more things of value. He drove to an area by Whittier in a stolen Toyota. This was the hometown of former impeached President Richard Nixon. At 2 a.m., while the neighborhood slept, he crept around the Zarera house and looked in. Vincent, owner of two pizzerias, had fallen asleep on the couch while watching TV. He walked around a little more and looked into the window and saw 44-year-old Maxine sleeping in bed. Getting excited, he decided this was the house. He tried the windows and could not get the screens off, but he was not giving up and eventually found a smaller window higher up to try. He moved a pail and stood on it where he was able to remove the screen and pop open the window and slide into the one-story house. He took off his shoes to avoid making any sound and crept into the living room where he fired a shot into the left side of the sleeping Vincent's head. Vincent woke and tried to get the gun from the person who had shot him. But this gun was chosen for how the bullets acted. Shooting someone in the head was almost a death sentence as the bullet pretty much bounces all over inside, destroying the brain. And that was what happened to Vincent. Maxine awoke to the gunshot, but before she could do anything, he had rushed into her bedroom. He beat her, flipped her onto her stomach, and tied her hands with a necktie from the closet. He ransacked the house looking for valuables. Maxine was an attorney, and she would have known what would happen if she did not get to one of the guns in that house. Being too focused on finding valuables, he did not pay enough attention to her, and she was able to unfree her hands and get off the bed to try and get the shotgun under the bed that her husband had bought the year before when their home had been burglarized. She pointed the shotgun at him and fired. Nothing happened. Vincent had removed the bullet because their grandchildren had visited that weekend and never put them back. He was infuriated and shot her three times, killing her. He unleashed his rage at her for defying him by not staying put and savagely beat her. And then he got a 10-inch knife from the kitchen and tried to cut out her heart, but he couldn't, so he carved an inverted cross on her chest. And then he cut out her eyes and placed them in a small jewelry box to take with him, to which they would never be found. He then proceeded to stab her all over. He tried to have sex with her, but he couldn't because he was shaken from her trying to defend herself with a gun. He gathers some things of value and leaves through the front door, all covered in blood. He went to his hotel room, all covered in blood, cleaned up, and went to fence his stolen goods, to which, still being sexually charged from the murder, he paid a sex worker as a means of a release, but he couldn't perform because he needed the violence to go with it. The only way to get a release is through violence, rape. He paid her and dropped her off and disappeared back into the night. A staff member from Vincent's Pizzeria found their bodies and in panic called their son, who called the police. Criminologists, as they were called, 
arrived and processed the scene. They found shoe prints in the ground, and on the pail outside the window was a perfect shoe print in dust. Forensic used plaster to preserve that footprint. They wanted to analyze that shoe print to see what they could learn about who would have worn those shoes. The shoe print came from a very large sneaker, but it was difficult to determine what type of shoe. It was not in their reference library, nor could they find it in any shoe stores, meaning it was a new release shoe or off-market brand. At this point in the investigation, it was a dead end. The bullets in these crimes were sent to a lab, but were too damaged to be able to be linked. On May 14, 1985, knowing there most likely would be a police presence in Monterio Park, he still went back there to the home of 66-year-old William Bill and 56-year-old Lillian Doyle, who had suffered a stroke and could not talk or walk. Bill had recently retired and purchased a van for them to explore the country, and they were to leave soon. Bill was Japanese and had been placed in the internment camps during World War II. Even being forced there, he still joined the army and fought for the United States. He was retired and wanted to enjoy life. The doors had alarms, but they left one window open through which the valley intruder was able to enter after removing the screen. Seeing the wheelchair in Lillian's room, he slipped past and came into Bill's room. Bill heard him and reached for his gun in the nightstand. The intruder shot him in the head. The bullet getting jammed in his throat. The intruder's gun jammed, so he beat Bill viciously, took his gun, and made his way back to Lillian's room. He secured her with thumb cuffs while he ransacked the house. Bill came to. Hearing him, the intruder went back and beat him unconscious again and returned to Lillian, where he raped her and demanded that she not look at him. Afterwards, he kissed her, took what he wanted, disabled the phone, and left. Bill came to and crawled to his wife's room to see her, saw what had happened to her. He left and made it to a phone that had not been disabled, and he was able to call for emergency services. He could only manage to get out, please, help, help me, before passing out. The 911 operator dispatched everything she could to his location. The fire department was first to arrive. The fire captain went in, making everyone else stay outside, and saw that Lillian had summoned all that she could and had made it to the doorway. He found Bill in a recliner next to the phone, in need of CPR. He gets the others and they start CPR. They loaded him up in an ambulance, but he died on the way to the hospital. The detectives found shoe prints and had them plastered, so the police in this jurisdiction did not want to work with Carrero on this case. They wanted to solve it themselves. It did not like him trying to assist as he thought the cases were linked. On May 29, 1985, arriving in another stolen car in the outskirts of Mon Monrovia, L.A. County, at the home of 83-year-old Mabel Ma Bell, who had her 81-year-old sister Florence Nettie Lang live with her, so she was not placed in an institution. Mabel had moved to this home 35 years before, from Oklahoma, where she had learned not to lock her doors, and so she hardly locked her door, and on that night an intruder slipped through her unlocked front door. 
People should be safe in their homes. They shouldn't have to lock doors. But we live in a world where some people use that to their advantage, and this man did. Finding two old ladies living there and little of value, he grew extremely angry. He went to the kitchen, and finding a hammer, he went back and bashed Nettie's with it in the head. He tied her up with the cord from her alarm clock, stopping it at 12.06 a.m. As he left the room, he stepped on the alarm clock, leaving behind a bloody shoe print. He went into Ma's room, where he struck her in the head so hard, brain matter went flying. He tied her with her alarm clock and went to Nettie's room and raped her. This time, he took Ma's red lipstick and drew a pentagram on her thigh and on the wall over her head, and also in Nettie's room. He spent a little time there, ate some food, drank some of their soda, used the bathroom, and then drove off into the dark night with the sister's meager possessions. Still riding high the next day, he decided to go on the hunt again, and on May 30, 1985, he went to the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle and her 11-year-old son in the well-off community of Burbank. The house was locked up, but not the doggy door. He was able to reach up through that door and unlock it to enter the house while its occupants slept. He came across the sleeping mother first, but had to see if there were any threats to him in the house before he could do what he came to do, sex and violence. He woke the sleeping mother up and demanded to know who else was there. She told him just her son. Carol was an RN and knew how to stay calm and talk to psychopaths. He handcuffed her son and put him in the closet, and then when talking to him, she let it slip she had a daughter who was at a friend's house, and he laughed that maybe he should wait till she got home. Carol would not let her daughter fall into his hands. He wanted valuables, and she gave him all she had. It wasn't enough for him, and he raped and sodomized her. Her pain fueled him. Like the others, he sweated a lot and had to get drinks of water from the kitchen. He decided to let them live, and after allowing Carol to put on another nightgown, as she begged him not to let her son see her naked, he handcuffed them both to her bed, leaving the key so her daughter could uncuff them. He asked for directions and left. Carol's son was able to reach the bedside phone and call 911. Though he couldn't talk, they were able to get the address from the system and sent help. The police arrived and the mother was taken to the hospital. The composite sketch they worked on did not match Maria's. Carol did not like it either. It took time for this case to blink to the others, and when it was, Carello interviewed her and had a new sketch done to Carol's satisfaction, and then it was a match to Maria's. On June 1st, Mabel's 78-year-old handyman found them. They were rushed to the hospital, but both women were comatized. Nettie also had exposed brain matter. No knife or gun was used in this attack, so it was not linked right away to the man in black. Carrello did not think it was linked either. After talking with Salerno, simply because serial killers tend to stick to the same patterns, also, the different choice of weapon, location being far out, and there had not been any pentagrams before. By early June, he was ready to strike again. This time, 
in Pico Rivera. This was either three blocks from Cesaro's house or half a mile from there and three blocks from Carrero's mother's house. The man in black next chose a house that had its front light out. This was the home of Sheriff's deputy John and his wife Susan Rodriguez. The intruder circled the house trying to find an unlocked window. All but one window was locked. This window had been painted shut, so he used a screwdriver to loosen the paint around it until he was able to open it. Susan had fallen asleep on the couch and heard a noise. She thought she heard the window open, and some sources say then heard someone enter the house. Some say he heard them talking from outside, but what matters is he heard them talking, so he left. The deputy called the sheriff's department, and he preserved evidence that was outside his window, that of a large shoe print. It looked just like the one outside of the Zara's. The intruder needed a release, and he stayed on the prowl. He tried to abduct a girl, but her neighbors heard her scream and called 911. He fled in a Toyota he had stolen earlier. He proceeded to run a red light, and before... He pulled over. He tossed his gun out the window. He gave the police officer a false name, and as the officer was running everything, he heard the bulletin about the attempted abduction of the girl. The man drew a pentagram on the hood of the car and ran. The officer found a wallet with a card for a dentist's appointment in it. He had it impounded, and though he suspected this was the man that tried to abduct the girl, they didn't check the car for prints. Carrello believed it to be linked, but jurisdiction issues caused the LAPD to not want to work with the sheriff's office unless the order came down from the higher-ups. Carrello believed these cases were all linked, but many officers did not believe they were because of the major differences. They did not think killers would deviate that widely so officers, besides Salerno, did not take Carrello seriously, but that was about to change. Now back to the shoes. They were still trying to figure out what shoes they were. Even still, it would be hard to track one person by their shoe prints. But one day, an intern walked by and was like, that's an Aviva. Everyone stopped and looked at her. They asked her if she was sure, and she said, yes, I have a pair in my trunk. They matched the shoes. They were Avivas. They were a new brand. That was why the department had no information on them. The summer of 1985 would go on to be one of the hottest summers recorded in a 100 years. This heat would cause many people to seek ways to cool their homes and allow the man in black a way in. A day after the attempted abduction, 28-year-old Patty Ellen Higgins of Arcadia was murdered. The violence seemed to suggest the man in black. She had been beat and had her throat slashed, plus raped and sodomized, but no physical evidence linked her to the others. They suspected her attacker used a pipe to break the window to get in, and there were no shoe prints. Back in Arcadia on July 2, 1985, at the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon, a widow who lived alone, the man in black took off the screen and silently slipped inside. He became enraged 
when he didn't find any young women and picked up a vase and smashed it down on Mary's sleeping head. She started to scream and he beat her unconscious, then went to her kitchen and got a knife that he used to stab her over and over and over. Even long after she was dead, he took what he could carry of her possessions and left. The stabbing and slashing here were exactly the same as Patty's, and there were Aviva shoe prints on the rug. Now the valley intruder cruised around in another stolen Toyota, looking for his next target. He knew the police were out looking for him, so he had to be extra cautious. On July 5, 1985, he went to Sierra Madrid, a wealthier neighborhood with very little crime, to the home of the Bennetts, their son, 18-year-old James, and daughter, 16-year-old Whitney. They frequently used the back door instead of the front, so the back door was locked, but not the front door. In the early morning, Whitney awoke backwards in bed, in severe pain and covered in blood. She freaked and screamed for her dad. He came in and saw a tire iron and the damage to his daughter. She had been beaten while she slept. Sometime in the night, the valley intruder slipped in while they slept and attacked their daughter, and for some reason left her alive. Whitney needed 478 stitches to her head. She was very lucky to be alive, but she remembered nothing of the attack. The valley intruder had not used a tire iron before, but because of the brutality, they thought it was him, and they were right. They soon discovered a bloody size 11 and a half shoe print of an avia on Whitney's comforter. Now back to Monteria Park on July 7, 1985. The valley intruder went to the pale yellow home of 61-year-old Joyce Nelson. He found an unlocked window, removed the screen, opened the window, leaving his shoe print in the soil by the window. Joyce lived alone and knew of the valley intruder. Her son, concerned about her safety, asked her to put bars on her window. Joyce did not want to be a prisoner in her home. Joyce had been asleep on the couch when the man in black woke her up after making sure she was alone. He tried to get her into her bedroom, but she resisted and demanded he leave. This angered him, and he beat her to death. He beat her so severely, his shoe print was embedded into her face. He left without his release and drove around in the stolen vehicle and then about 3 a.m. went back to Monteria Park to the yellow one-story home of 63-year-old psychiatric nurse Sophia Dickman. Sophia had cut her trees so the valley intruder had no place to hide behind, but he still crept around her property, looking for an entry point. Unable to find an unlocked window, he reached in through her doggy door and unlocked the door. After making sure Sophia was alone, he woke her, handcuffed her, and demanded that she tell him where her jewelry was. Sophia, like Carol, knew from his behavior he was a psychopath and knew how to talk to one. She talked very calmly to him and did not resist at all. She wanted to live. So, after he got the few valuable jewelry she owned, he made her swear on Satan that that was all she owned, and then he tried to rape her but couldn't. Maybe she seemed too willing. I mean, there's no power and control over a willing participant. What matters is he could not rape her nor sodomize her, though he tried. 
So he left after handcuffing her to her bed. Sophia got up and dragged her bed to the window, opened it with her feet, and yelled for her neighbor, Sheriff Deputy Linda Arthur. She was widowed as her husband had been a sheriff deputy and had been killed on duty earlier in the year. She woke and came to Sophia's aid, knew instantly this had to be the valley intruder. Sophia would go on to describe her attacker as white, tall, thin, with bad teeth, and good-looking. Many of his victims described him as good-looking. Carrero was spending so much time on this case, his wife and children went to her parents' house because they did not feel safe staying at home. Carrero told his wife to call first before she ever came back home so that he wouldn't shoot her by accident. But when he would drift to sleep, he would have nightmares about the intruder and wake thinking he was there and had to search the house looking for shoe prints. This shows how the man in black was slowly destroying the psyche of those trying to catch him and make Los Angeles County safer to sleep in. The county may be huge with millions of people, but the fear of how random his attacks were caused panic. People were terrified as they don't know who is next nor how he's picking his victims. Anyone can be a victim even the police. People started becoming afraid. Sales for weapons, guard dogs, and home security increased dramatically. This was roughly the time when the Herald Examiner started calling him the Night Stalker, and that name stuck. He held the county in a reign of terror during the summer of 1985. He attacked people in the place they were supposed to be the most safe. People were locking their doors and windows during a very warm summer. People were getting creative. One couple made dummies, and the husband slept in the garage, and the wife hid behind the TV with a portable phone. But a huge break had come to them at this point. Investigators had gone to the Aviva Company's headquarters, where the company was able to identify the model that made that print. They were from an aerobic shoe that had only been on the market for four months, and only 1,300 pairs of this model had been made. By studying the print, they were able to tell what type of model that shoe was, and by counting the lines on the shoe, they were able to determine that it came from a size 11 and a half shoe. Only six of that model had been shipped to Los Angeles, and only one was a size 11 and a half. Only a handful of men in the whole country owned a size 11 and a half Avas, cementing the theory that it was the work of a serial killer. That it was extremely unlikely to be two different serial killers with the same shoes. His attacks seemed random. His MO was all over. The only thing that stayed the same was his shoes. Carrello made a 20-minute long tape to be distributed throughout the county to the 63 different law enforcement departments discussing the MO of the case. He discussed his footwear and included how survivors described him as having bulging eyes and saturated with a rank rubbery odor. Police departments finally started working together. And this was when the LAPD finally allowed them access the car from the attempted abduction. It had been outside, so any fingerprints from when he touched the hood was gone. But they learned of the dentist card, which when they went to the dentist, the patient, who as it turned out gave a fake name, had come back on July 3rd, meaning 
If the LAPD had worked with the sheriff's department, they may have caught the night stalker when he had come back. He had absences and was in pain, meaning he should be seeking out medical care for his teeth soon. So they staked out the dentist's office to see if he would come back. What the police knew, they were looking for someone with big feet and bad teeth. July 17th, Mabel died from massive brain trauma. Nettie was still comatose and was being fed through a tube. On July 20th, 1985, the stalker went to Glendale to the home of 66-year-old Leela and her 68-year-old husband, um, I've seen his name as Mason or Maxon, Needing. They had been following the news and their windows were all closed and locked, but the stalker sliced the screen door to their French doors and easily reached in and unlocked it. He went back to the newest Toyota he had stolen to retrieve a machete he had just purchased to increase his terror on the city. He went back in and woke the sleeping couple. He tried beheading Max, but the machete was not sharp enough and he just left a gash on his neck. The stalker then shot him once in the head, killing him. He turned the gun on Leela, shooting her three times in the face, killing her. He started to gather what he could, but his portable scanner notified him that someone heard the shots and he needed to leave. He got in the stolen Toyota and was pulling away just as a patrol car came onto the street. He wasn't satisfied. After 4 a.m., he made it into Sun Valley. The area was north of the killings, and the people felt they weren't in danger, but the Night Stalker made it into the home of Chinarong, I'm sorry for pronouncing it wrong, and Smokid Kavanya, who immigrated from Thailand 10 years before, and their 8-year-old son and 2-year-old daughter. He tried the sliding door, and it was unlocked. He slipped in, and Smoke Kid had been asleep on the couch. She was a light sleeper and woke up to him entering. He rushed her and covered her mouth, telling her to stay quiet or he'd kill her. She agreed and went to see who else was there. He found her husband snoring in their bed. The night stalker put his gun to his head and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. He went back to Smoke Kid who had tried to hide her wedding ring. Realizing this, he took off his glove and smacked her, demanding the ring. He tied her with the electric cord from a hair dryer, brought her to the bedroom, and raped her. Her fear excited him. The eight-year-old's alarm clock went off, and he ran in and tied him up, putting a sock in his mouth. Then he ransacked the house. He then sodomized her and demanded the valuables. She gave him her hidden jewelry, and then he demanded that she swear to Satan that that was it, and she did, to which he dragged her back to the bedroom and raped her again. He left, and Smokid untied herself, got the kids, and went to the neighbors. Because it was so far north in the county, it was not linked right away, as they did not think the night stalker would go that far even though they found the Aviva footprints. At this point, there is an $80,000 reward for the identity of the Night Stalker. What linked the crimes were the viciousness of them, the ransacking, and the disabling of the phones. The shoe prints and the brutal rapes also linked many of them. The Night Stalker case had become a media frenzy. 
the media from all over the country and world descended onto L.A. People were terrified. He was entering their sanctuary while they slept, and the heat did not help make it easier. It was an extremely hot summer. People could not sleep. Husbands were staying up all night guarding the doors with bats and guns. Children were terrified and slept with their parents. July 22nd, ballistic tests confirmed that the gun used on the Nadian attack was the same as the one used to kill Veronica and Dale. They still at this point thought the Night Stalker had been in the service and an ex-con who had done hard time. They reached out to the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, who were still in their early days and really could not do anything as this murderer was unique to anything they had studied. They were learning from interviews with serial killers, and none of them had been like the Night Stalker. August 6, 1985, in yet another stolen Toyota, the Night Stalker made his way to the home of 38-year-old Chris and 27-year-old Virginia Peterson and their 5-year-old daughter in Northridge, Los Angeles County. He entered through an open sliding glass door and made his way to their bedroom. He cocked his gun, and Virginia, being a light sleeper, woke and started yelling at him to get the hell out. He shot her just under her left eye. Chris woke up and Virginia told him she thought he shot her with a stun gun. Chris did not know that the Night Stalker was there to kill them and said, is this some kind of sick joke? Then she turned towards him and he saw the bullet hole in her face. The Night Stalker shot Chris in the temple and he fell down, to which he laughed and turned back to Virginia and fired. But he missed. Their daughter woke and started screaming, and Chris knew he was all that stood in the way of this man killing his family, and he attacked. The Night Stalker shot at him two more times and missed. Having no more bullets, he had to leave. Chris fought him to kill, but the Night Stalker was able to throw him down and escape. This couple had been lucky. The bullets had been so old that they did not do the damage that they normally would have done. Virginia's description of their attacker is what linked him to the Night Stalker case. On August 8, 1985, he stole a car and headed to the upscale neighborhood of Diamond Bar to the home of Sheikha and Ellis and their two sons, aged three years and ten weeks. He put the gun right next to Ellis' head and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. He jumped over his body onto Shanika, Sheikha punched her, flipped her over, handcuffed her, then told her he would kill her and her kids if she screamed. When looking for jewelry, he told her not to make a sound. She said she swears to God she wouldn't, and he said, no, swear to Satan, and she did. He wanted cash, and after telling them there was some in their wallets, he raped and sodomized her, getting excitement off her pain. The three-year-old woke up, and he brought her to him and let her comfort him to keep him quiet and then he dragged her back to an empty bedroom where he proceeded to rape and sodomize her again and then he drank her breast milk he went and ate fruit from their kitchen he still wasn't satisfied and took her to find more valuables and raped her again then he handcuffed her to a door and left she got her three-year-old son to go to the neighbors and get them Soon after this case, the sheriff held a news conference, officially announcing there was an active serial killer who had shaggy hair and bad teeth. 
The sheriff tried to reassure the public that they were doing all they could to catch the Night Stalker, but the latest attack left the public more horrified than before. The police were trying. They sent his sketch and teeth x-ray to every dentist, which there were about 5,000 of them, knowing what he would need medical care soon. Tips were pouring in. The reward was well over 80000 and the police thought it was only a matter of time. Someone had to know him. Some tips included people saying they saw a man throwing bloody clothes into the dumpster behind the Cecil Hotel and of a man with bloody clothes in the hallways. And then he was gone. August 18, 1985, in San Francisco, 62-year-old Barbara and her 66-year-old husband, Peter Pan, had immigrated from Hong Kong in 1969. At 2 a.m., the stalker made it into their yellow house through a window after removing the screen. He put the gun to Peter Pan's head and fired, killing him instantly. He immediately attacked Barbara and began to sexually assault her. She fought, so he shot her for not being compliant. He ransacked the house, masturbated onto the floor, vomited onto the carpet, and in lipstick drew a pentagram on their bedroom wall writing, Jack the Knife. He left and got a prostitute. At 10.30 the next morning, their son found them. Barbara was barely alive. There was a report of another home being broken into in San Francisco around this time. The 16-year-old niece was there alone and hid in a closet downstairs as the stalker ransacked the house and took jewelry that had the owner's social security number etched in it that would be linked to the Night Stalker. The San Francisco police worked with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. They shared information as catching whoever was terrorizing their communities was priority number one. Unfortunately for the investigation, the mayor, Diane Feinstein, held a press conference and released the type of evidence they had the ballistics and the shoes. They had been very important evidence that the detectives were holding back to use against the Night Stalker. But the Night Stalker had made everyone aware that no one was safe. He wasn't confined to LA County anymore. The state was in a panic. Gun and other security sales increased dramatically. After stealing an orange Toyota station wagon, on August 24, 1985, he headed to Mission Virgia in Orange County. People were more vigilant. They had installed bars on their windows and stayed up protecting their loved ones. He made it into the beige home of an engaged couple, 29-year-old Bill Carnes and 27-year-old Inzai Erickson. He crept around the house until he found a window that he could remove the screen and open. After checking the house, he went to the bedroom and cocked his gun. It woke Bill up and he jumped from the bed and the night stalker shot him once in the head, knocking him down, then shot him two more times. He pulled the covers off and said, while laughing, he asked her if she knew who he was. She said, no. He said, I'm the night stalker. She replied, oh God, no. He told her not to say God, but to say Satan, and then demanded that she say, I love Satan, to which she did, punching her, demanding her to say it louder. 
He took her to another room and raped and sodomized her, then kissed her tenderly when done. By now, he was knowledgeable on hiding spots and quickly found her jewelry. He demanded more valuables, and she took him to where their cash was, totaling $400. He told her that was what her life was valued at, because otherwise he'd have killed her. Before he left, he said to her, Tell them you've met the Night Stalker. Now, at this time, 13-year-old James Romero III had been outside working on a motorbike and had noticed the orange station wagon. He noted the driver and was able to get part of the license plate. The night stalker had not seen him. If he had, he would not have chosen that street. The night stalker usually drove with gloves, but as he sweats a lot when committing crime, he removed the gloves to drive and adjusted the mirror. He would wipe it down, but he missed a print on the rear view mirror. Computer systems were not as advanced as they are now, and without a name, they had nothing to compare the print to. Now, I want to point out how the servant of Satan had stolen a station wagon that was owned by 56-year-old Bill Gregory, who was a member of Christian Vineyard Fellowship Church, and there were pamphlets and two Christian Bibles in the back seat. This station wagon was part of his undoing. In San Francisco, they released information on the jewelry that was stolen, and a woman by the name of Donna Myers came forward. She only knew a first name, but her information led to Armando Rodriguez, who gave them a last name. The sheriff held a press conference where he identified 25-year-old Richard Ramirez as the Night Stalker, to which he said, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. And like that, his face and name was all over the country. Now that they know who he is, I'm going to end it here, and in the next episode, we will dissect who Richard Ramirez is, why he terrified Los Angeles County, and most importantly, what happened after they identified him. If all goes well, I will release that episode by Monday. Till next time, sweet dreams.